is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University, and we're back. I'm an author, psychologist, and speaker. Every week we talk about how to love ourselves, others, and higher nature, how to improve our finances, career, relationships, spirituality, our health, and well-being. And today we have a very interesting and very pertinent topic. It is how to resist evil and triumph over tragedy. And we're facing a lot of challenges this year and the last couple of years with the virus, with war, with health issues. And we have a fascinating guest today, a good friend, Pablo Zaragoza who actually I met a couple years ago at the Miami Book Festival. He's a great novelist. He's written over actually 13 novels now. And before that, he was a medical doctor for over 30 years. He worked actually in the Florida prisons. He had contact with Eileen Warnos, the notorious silver killer that was immortalized in the movie Monster. And he's worked a lot with a lot of people in prison as well as other patients to help them. And in his writing, he's won numerous awards, first place and also finalist awards in international competitions. He's a father of three children and he loves gardening. Welcome, Pablo, to the show. Well, it's nice to be there, my friend. How are you doing? Great. I'm glad to have you back. You got a latest book that's very fascinating. It's called The Reluctant Nazi. That you, I think yes, sir. Out. And it's very fascinating. Oh, it's upside down. Okay, there it is. Okay. okay. No wonder he's reluctant. He's upside down. Okay. And this is a fascinating book, and I want to get into it. I'll just tell you what, a little bit of what I, I see here and what you told me. It's a young man who joins the SS, which is the kind of paramilitary part of the Nazi Germany. And he rises to the ranks. He works with Himmler, the notorious Gestapo head. And I think they steal art and other things and gold and jewelry from Jewish individuals, uh, victims. And Himmler says to him, I want every scrap of gold these ignorant animals have, their teeth, their crosses, their stars of David from the banks, jewelry stores, so they can build vast wealth for the party. Now, he's into this, apparently, and then he, I guess he changes his tune later on when he hears about Hitler's final solution to kill all the Jews, and he has a new wife and all that, and they kind of steal everything back. Tell us what happened in this story. This is a pretty fascinating. Yeah, he gets involved with these folks at an early age during the, the early 30s, and uh, he's swept up in the, the Nazi fervor. Once he starts actually seeing what they do in Poland and in the Eastern Front by these squads of individuals mowing down people, stealing from them. He says, this isn't what I signed up for. Yes. I'm not here to steal from cadavers. I'm not here to brutalize innocent people. Yes. I'm here to, you know, fight for the fatherland. I have no problem with that, but this is not fighting. This is yes. murder. Yes. So, Paulo, so so initially he steals on behalf of Nazi Germany uh, the gold and the jewelry from the, the victims, right? The Jewish victims. Right. Now, later, does he steal it back for his own personal use or does he steal it back for, like, organizations to give it back to the Jewish people? Well, eventually he does uh, help uh, Simon Wiesenthal keep his foundation going. Yes. He does give monies back to the Jewish community yes. and gets recognition for that. But initially, you know, him and his second wife, Irma, right. who's been put into his sphere by the party because they want to keep eyes on him totally. Yes. And uh, she uh, also becomes of the same mind that he has, that these people are just thieves. Yes. And uh, so they funnel funds away from their hordes of gold and jewelry and so forth. And they begin to funnel it away. But also he's been charged to put funds into special operations. Mm. That's uh, Penimundo, the rocket factories, yes. the crazy uh, huge lens that Hitler wants to put up in the sky okay. to direct the sunlight to burn uh, villages away, wow. the jet plane project, yeah. all these super yeah. weapons that supposedly they were building to be able to uh, 
to dominate the world. Also, heavy water uh, experiments to be able to produce atomic bombs. All of these things, he has the control of the funds. Yes. And by controlling the funds, he also can stifle them. And he does so. I see. Okay. So he has kind of a change of heart. But was there a point, was he tempted at some point to just say, hey, heck with this. I'm taking this money and leaving the country or something? Or All not? the time. All the time. He's, he's afraid. He's paranoid. Okay. He wants to be able to escape. But Irma says you can't escape okay. because these people have agents all over the world and we're not going to be able to escape completely until these people are in the ground. I see. So uh, his name is Hans, the protagonist, Hans. right? And then Irma, his, right. his uh, second wife, apparently in the book. Yes, Irma. Okay, what happened to the first wife? Was she a good person? The or? first wife also kind of, she's she's directed to keep the spy on him okay. and she sends reports back to Goering and Himmler and so forth. Okay. But she also becomes, instead of a, an empty vessel, right. she becomes enamored with him and oh. she gives him a son. But okay. in doing so, the child dies uh, in utero oh. and she becomes septic and dies. Oh, wow. Tragedy. Okay. So, yeah. interesting. Now, is there a mom, his conscience, uh, you know, in psychology we have what's called the superego. You may have heard of the id, ego, superego. It is like the spontaneous right. instinct of, you know, getting what you want. It's a gratification. So that might say, hey, yeah. take the money, you know, steal it, run. A super That's ego. Him. He wants, he, he wants <laughs> to go and run away because he can't take it anymore. Yeah, take, take he has all this paranoid pressure on him. Okay. He's afraid that he's being watched. He's afraid that at any moment these jackals are going to yes. eliminate yes. him. Yes. And so he's he's fearful for his life and his family. I see. But Irma keeps him, Irma's logic, yeah. she says, no, you can't do this now. Yeah. It's not time. You're not, we're not ready to do it. Okay. So she's the, the, the counterbalance to his flight. I see. So she's kind of, we call, we call her the ego, ego's rational mind, and then the super ego is conscience. So right. she's probably saying, okay, let's plan it carefully, but also let's give back or help in some ways, possibly. Sure, uh, absolutely. And uh, I guess a lot yes. of uh, wives, hope, I mean, good wives, I would imagine, or good husbands are that way to their spouse. They're we like, would love that to be the case. Like the, <laughs> they're the conscience, right? I, I, have, I, have a, I have a gem because she uh, keeps me straight all the okay, time. You have a great partner. Like if you want to eat uh, yes. all the pumpkin cake and she says, no, you can't do it. It's, it's bad for you. Did you ever get that? That's <laughs> right. No, no. She <laughs> makes sure that we eat healthy, that we okay. stay healthy, that I go and do my gym and all these okay. kinds of things. I so in a sense, she's uh, Irma trying to make sure that I stay alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, in some way, the Hans... Uh, has uh, Irma to you know keep him alive, right? In the same way. Yes. And, uh, yes. Absolutely. So, in terms of this, um, all great novelists, Pablo, show character arc, right? You know the the transformation of, right. of, of the protagonist. So. At the end, he's working with Simon Weisenthal, the, the great Nazi hunter, trying to get justice right. for Jewish people, and helping to, I guess, uh, find Hitler at the end or something like that. Right. At the end, uh, he uh, he's assigned uh, to go to Argentina because there have been reports, photographic evidence that he might be alive. And so he does go uh, with, a, with a fella, and they go to this villa, which supposedly has, uh, he's been living at. And they find a grave and they unearth the grave and there he is uh, dead, finally. And so that all that hoopla about him being burned after he shot himself in the Fuhrer bunker was, was all false. It was all false. Okay. He had escaped. He had wow. escaped uh, through Norway via submarine to, uh, to Argentina. Wow. See, they had been funneling funds into Latin America, yes. Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, right. to be able to set up, set themselves up 
in industry in case it fell apart. Interesting. Now, this sounds like a fictional fact. I mean, in reality, Hitler did die in the bunker, or is this an alternative theory that you're developing? It's an all. Well, there are there is photographic evidence that he was still alive for a while. Interesting. After the wow, so it's like an alternative know, uh, theory. Yeah, it's an alternative ending to you know World War II. Uh, the Russians uh, only recently have allowed uh, DNA confirmation of his uh, of his death. Interesting, but we, we it's, there's still a lot of questions. I see. And then I think Olaf uh, was Olaf Eichmann was found in Argentina. Uh, some of the Nazis did right. escape. Well, there's a there's a large uh, colony of Germans uh, expatriates yes. there in Argentina yes. in this area, one particular area of Argentina which looks a lot like Switzerland or Bavaria. Interesting. And so they've built chalets there, and wow. they have a wineries there, and they do right. have a lot of industrial clout. Right. You think that any of them are still alive? Any of the, I mean, this has been like 100 years ago, right, or something. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> they're, 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 the, the originators may not be around, the but their descendants are. I their see. children are. I see. And, you know, the, the philosophy probably has stuck with them for a good long yes, time. Right. Exactly. Wasn't it Joseph, was it Mengele, one of the doctors experimented? Mengele, yeah, Mengele was supposed to be in uh, Brazil and Paraguay. Wow. They, they've confirmed his death. I see. So go back to the arc of the development. Now, you said he was motivated initially by, I guess, you know, pride to be a part of this organization, the Nazi SS. Right. And then uh, he's motivated by fear, I guess, that they're persecuting him and maybe greed a little bit and also whatever it is, right? Uh, but at the end, he's motivated by helping, right? By justice. Right. He, he goes through that transformation because he's, he's seen the horror of this, of war. Yes. You know, the, the bodies, the burnt corpses, yes. the senseless killings. And uh, he uh, he's more deeply motivated by all of this. He's a Catholic. Right. Although he, d during the Nazi National Socialism persecuted Christians as well as Jews. Yes. Uh, you know, a lot of priests died in the concentration camps as well, yes. as did gypsies and other nationalities. Right. Exactly. So uh, he, um, he, he definitely has, uh, he feels deeply moved by the, these, uh, these deaths. I see. Now, one interesting thing about you, uh, I like probably when I met you at the um, book fair in Miami, which we missed, right? It's, it was a lot of fun. Right. Uh, is the idea that you've worked with some of the most notorious, you know, criminals, right, in the Florida state prisons as a medical doctor. And right. you, if you came across Eileen Warnos, which you mentioned, the, the serial killer of men that was uh, in the movie Monster, and uh, probably others like that, who are, we can call them, I guess, sociopaths, you can call them, you know, sadists or narcissists, whatever you want to call them, unfortunately. Right. Uh, although we do talk about love. Love University is about, you know, redemption, compassion, and love. And uh, you mentioned that sometimes you can you know, find that as well uh, among yourself and also helping some of these people. But here's a question I want to ask you, and this is, actually goes to this whole Nazi Germany you know, tragedy, is why do people follow evil leaders? And you know the famous study with um, Milgram shock experiment where they mm -hmm. had students volunteer to be uh, a part of this. And then they had some guy in the other room and they said, okay, he made a mistake on this task. Give him a shock. And they keep increasing the shocks. Uh, until 450 mil volts, 450 volts, which actually almost kill, can kill a person. And just right. before the uh, final volts, the guy, oh, I got a heart problem. And they found that two-thirds of the student subjects were actually shock him all the way, probably almost to death. And people were shocked. This is like in the, in the 60s, uh, soon after uh, Adolf Eichmann's trial you know, in Nazi Germany. So Milgram decided, hey, let's, let's study this obedience to authority idea. And he found that 
replicated among other uh, countries, and you know, even more recently, uh, these holdings still find, these findings still hold. You know, the two thirds people would do it. Now, the only exceptions are, for example, if the person that you're shocking is right next to you, like per personally close to right. you. Uh, right. Yeah. Or, for example, if uh, there's two experimenters, one says shock, one says don't shock. Or if the other people in the room, the other students who are Confederates, actually, they say don't do it. So you have a social consensus. So there are some exceptions to this rule that, you know, they would actually shock him all the way to almost death. So tell us about that. What, what is your take on this obedience to authority and resistance to negative evil authority? Well, unfortunately, most of our population are lemmings. They'll go to the edge and jump off the cliff. Okay. And uh, what, what, what is a lemming? Uh, tell us about that. A lemming is a little creature, small, tiny little animal. Okay. Uh, okay. Is in a pack of the packs of them in Madagascar. They uh, sometimes, uh, when the population gets too big, uh, they go to the edge of the cliff and jump off, wow. killing themselves. Wow. Um, there's also a social experiment where they divided students up into guards yes. and, and prisoners. Zimbardo's and guys. Yep. And he, you found out that dehumanizing attitudes of people over time yes. where you become so wrapped up in your authority yes. that you forget to be human. Exactly. Yeah. One third of the students in the study uh, who were uh, guards uh, became sadistic. Yeah. They would, basically, uh, they would have, strip them naked. Uh, they would not let them uh, throw away the the feces in the bucket, and they would have to uh, you know clean the toilet with their hands. At some point, they even fired fire extinguishers at them. And these were students. Right. These are all caused. So they had to dis discontinue the study after a few days. People ha were having nervous breakdowns. So one of the, a couple of things they found from that study, maybe probably you, you saw this um, as you did the research, is something called routinizing the task, which basically means that. You give a number to people, for example, Nazi Germany, you know, they give numbers to prisoners also in, in, in prison. You're no longer a human, right? You're kind of dehumanized. You're a number. Uh, you're a number, right? So, you know, uh, let's, let's take three, four, five, six and give them solution number two, five, three, which is gas chamber. But you don't say, you know, father of four, you know, this, uh, you know, Ralph, you know, a human being. Uh, you make them a number. So that's one, one, one thing that can actually, unfortunately, gear people to this, these violent and sadistic acts. Well, in, in Nazi Germany, what they did was instead of uh, putting a bullet in the back of your head, which was initially done in, in the conquest of Poland, yes. uh, when they collected people and executed them, uh, they sent out squads with portable gas chambers. Wow. And they just put people in. They didn't have to see their gas. They didn't have to see them die. Wow. They just, you know, were able to get them out. Um, because of the demoralizing um, situation that they had uh, when they had people being shot, when they were shooting children, when they were shooting me, uh, women, uh, old persons, yes. um, they, uh, they said, no, no, we can't do that anymore. We have to do it systematically in a way that dehumanizes these people. And so that's how the gas chambers in Auschwitz yes. became available to them. And they were only people in the line and they didn't see the gasping for air, the, uh, the, the, the horror in people's eyes. No, they didn't see any of that because they didn't even clean the gas chambers out. These were, uh, these were people who they, the capos in the uh, in the concentration camps, 
who cleaned out the, the ovens, who put the people in uh, the uh, in the in the landfills where they threw lime over them to keep away the stench. Wow. And so they tried to make it as dehumanize as dehumanizing as possible because they knew right. that if they people saw these things, yes. they would be revolted by them. Definitely. Yeah. Let's go going back to the uh, Milgram experiment. You know, when the uh, person you're shocking is uh, far away. It's like the idea that you can kill at a distance uh, easier. Mm-hmm. In the old days, you know, you have to kill someone face to face and see the blood. And I mean, either that's much more difficult. But now, you know, you hit a button, the bomb explodes, you don't see anything happening. Uh, and the other idea is that, you know, a lot of these Germans, they say before the war, were just average, you know, middle class uh, family people. They had jobs, mm-hmm. they sent their kids to school. You know, they weren't necessarily sadistic or, or evil in any way. But then all of a sudden, a lot of things changed for uh, among some people. And one thing that they well, talk about. That- oh, uh, is uh, go, go right ahead, go right ahead. Oh, okay, uh, I know you have some ideas. Is a uh, diffusion of responsibility, uh, Pablo? You've heard this idea that uh, if other people are present, you think that someone else is going to, you know, do something to help someone else, so you don't sure. do it, and therefore no one does anything because the, the responsibility <laughs> is spread out. So tell us about that. I well, mean, and many of these many of these camps were far away from the population. Ah. They people had heard about them. But they never saw anything, and they said, "Well, we were, we were in village X. Yes. We we heard of these things, but we never saw it. Right. And so, you know, it, this is this happens even today. Yes. You know, in in places where they have, you know, isolated populations where they can say, "Well, we we never saw this happen. Yes. You know, and it's very easy to say, "Well, it didn't happen because we didn't see it." Definitely. Also, one thing uh, at the end of the book, Pablo, you have something interesting. I guess this guy's gone through a journey. You know, Hans, he's helped uh, you know get the money back, and then he's helped uh, uh, Simon Weisenthal. But he said he's in Austria in 2005, talking to um, yeah. uh, the Rosenthal, uh, Weisenthal, and he, and he says that they saw Nazi youth even today. You know, they're seeing them walking around with leather jackets sure. and shaved heads and swastikas. And he says to... Uh, <laughs> the Weissenthal, they're coming back. The hooligans haven't read about the atrocities the leaders committed. They tell them that unemployment is due to the brown man working for less money and that their country will soon belong to these people. So, you know, tell us, Paul, the idea of a scapegoating, you know, where you blame someone else for, you know, problems, issues outside of yourself, and then that creates the idea of the violence. Tell us about that. Is that occurring in today's society? Oh, I think it is. I think we were blaming other people for our own problems. I I, I do believe that. Mm. You know, people uh, have always kind of blamed uh, either Hispanics for taking their jobs or blacks yes. for taking their jobs. Right. And you know, we uh, you know, it's this culture of uh, blaming someone else for your own problems. Uh, if we didn't have a, you know, oh, if we didn't have quotas, I would have gone into medical school. Or if there weren't uh, racial preferences, I would have had my this job instead of looking at yourself. Were you the best qualified person for the job? Right. And so we want to blame someone else for our own shortcomings. Yes. This is very this is prevalent even today. So unfortunately, Nazism and other groups may have some appeal to certain young people that have these kind of ideas. Uh, The so-called idealistic aspect of having, you know, their society as superior. But let's talk about the other side. I mean, this is you know kind of negative, and this is over eighty years ago, but it's still very pertinent today. Uh, the mm-hmm. idea of the you know the pre- prejudice and and also hate, but there is also meaning and love. Now you've 
probably researched uh, one of the great psychiatrists, Viktor Frankl, who actually was in the Nazi concentration camps as a medical doctor oh, yes. uh, during Nazi Germany. And he observed that there are some men that are very strong and sturdy, and they died after a very short time in the camp. They gave up. Other men were very small and scrawny, but they survived the whole four or five years. And because those guys had a will to meaning, they had a purpose for living beyond just the everyday thing. Some of them wanted to write a book or maybe see their grandchildren or children graduate from college. You know, that was what drove them to survive. Oh, and and a lot of them had faith. Yes. You know, a lot of faith moves uh, mountains. Uh, If you believe, then you don't, you can't give up. Definitely. Because you know that if you give up, you're asking for death. And you don't want to, only the Lord can give you death. <laughs> uh, so you, you, you believe yes. that if you commit this act of violence on yourself, yes. you won't see the, the day of glory. So again, you know, faith had a lot to do with people surviving. Definitely. Yeah. We call it the higher nature, which people have different beliefs, God, spirit, whatever it is. But something that drives you beyond yourself, uh, the search for meaning, according to Viktor Frankl, another uh, psychologist or psychiatrist. And he talked about the idea that we have to find a meaning in the work we do or doing some good deeds for others, uh, making a connection, you know, a loving connection with other people, uh, establishing what I call a legacy of love in some ways. Like what you leave behind, you know, once you're gone, is that love mm-hmm. that you had, right? Love for your family, love through your work, love through uh, things that you've done. And in your case, apparently your love for your books. Uh, oh, you're, yeah. you're a great researcher. Uh, you know, you've done a lot of work on this and also a great writer. And uh, I was, we were talking earlier about your uh, discipline for this. Because let's say there are writers out there that maybe have writer's block, you know, people starting out, maybe they're doing it for a while. But it's hard for them to really keep that, that production going. Tell us a little bit about what, what gets you, what keeps you going. I know you have a great partner, but uh, what is your discipline like? Uh, how do you do that writing every day? Oh, well, I get up and unfortunately, these characters talk to me in my sleep. Don't give me much chance. (laughs) Don't give me much chance of uh, of rest sometimes. And so I come to the typewriter and I've got dialogue that's uh, at least a couple hours long already planned. Wow. Um, And so I come in and kind of unload this on my on my computer. Yes. trying to make sure that there's a flow and there's continuity and there's uh, something that that flows naturally. Uh, And so we work in that basis on that basis. Uh, I'm not much for outlining books ahead of time. I'm terrible at doing that. I just let it flow. Okay, that makes and sense. it it works for me. Not everybody's like that. Some people have to draw little little stick figures and uh, write little paragraphs here and there, right? To be able and outline it. I don't. I just have, I just know that these characters had a life, and I'm trying to portray it as best I can. Okay, interesting. I've heard that about some of the authors that have that great ability to you know channel the the. Uh, you know, the characters mm-hmm. through the writing. The character. Yes. Now, you did mention something that right. you, do, you do write uh, six to eight hours a day. So you don't just lie in bed and just wake up whenever, right? And just, you know, so you have a... <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm very much... Uh, I can't stand the light. So as soon as it dawns uh, and the light hits my face, right. that's it. I wake up. Okay, wake up. And start, so I get up and, and I start writing. Okay. And then you keep writing throughout the day. And I, I even asked you, do you have any hobbies? He says, no. Uh, writing and a little gardening, that's it. Right, uh, Pablo? So your right. your passion is, is writing. 
And uh, if you remember Isaac Asimov, one of the most prolific authors of all time science fiction, he would write mm -hmm. like, you know, 16 hours a day, you know, 12 hours a day, whatever it was. And uh, I mean, he loved to write. That's what he did. And uh, his first wife divorced him because he never go anywhere with her. <laughs> but his second wife realized uh, his greatness and his creativity, so she right. actually supported him. So uh, I guess you find a good partner that supports you in case. Oh, Susie's uh, a gem. She uh, helps me write. Uh, she sometimes say, well, why don't you do this? And then I say, oh, no, I don't like that. <laughs> That's not me. Why don't you write it? And he says, well, I can't write. And he says, no, you that's baloney. You write very well. And she okay. does. She's writing okay. a book now that I've encouraged her to do. Yes. Uh, but uh, she's perfect. You know, she edits for me. She makes sure that uh, my T's are crossed and my I's are dotted. And the story makes sense. Definitely. And that's the important thing, that the story makes sense. Exactly. Apollo, uh I want to ask you a couple of questions. These are what we call questions of power, uh, questions about you, you know, and how you've transformed yourself, if you know. Mm -hmm. uh, has there been a failure in your life or a parent failure that has set you up for success in life that helped you transform in some way? Oh, well, I believe that we're always transforming. We're always trying to improve ourselves. I started out as a pathologist. I then went into general medicine. And uh, from there, we've done several different things. And this is about the third transformation that I've had. So we're always transforming. We're but always trying. Was there a failure? I mean, I know you've been divorced and other things. I mean, what's been that's the most a, That's a failure. That's a personal failure. Okay. Did it help um, you overcome, I mean, something by learning from that in the future? Oh, yeah. It, it helped me overcome a sense of that idea of self-worth. I didn't have self-worth at that point. Okay. And so I went into a depression yes. and it was very hard for me to get out of it. Yes. And so I started to uh, started at that point, I started to write and I started to write. Uh, I had two novels that came out of that transformation. Yes. One of them is called Armageddon. Oh, yeah. And it's about yeah, it's about demons and so forth. Yes. And it uh, and the other one is called Infectious Game, where uh, the protagonist is a lady who uh, who uses bacteria in order to eliminate those that oh. have have caused her problems in life. Okay. Um, and um, you know, uh, and then we started our series, our Matson series. Now we're on Matson case three, right. uh, detective who's an African American. Okay. Uh, in the fifties and sixties right. in New York City, and his ability to to solve crimes. So it, wow. it may it kind of pushed me. Yes. Into writing. So you have kind of a wide variety of, of topics and interests in your writing. I remember mm -hmm. Armageddon, we talked about, I like that, the whole spiritual uh, take mm -hmm. on it. And now you have this one here in Germany. Now, in terms of um, tweet, uh, if you can write one tweet to the world, I know you're not a technical guy per se, but, you know, like a little phrase. <laughs> <laughs> what would be that little phrase you would write to the world to inspire? Oh, 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 oh find your place and find your place. Uh, everybody has a place. Everybody has a self-worth and everybody has a purpose. And find that purpose and pursue it with vigor. Yes, definitely. I like that. Now, I love this book, though. So The Reluctant Nazi. If if people want to get this book, where can they go to get it? And and learn more about you. They, Do you have a website or something, Pablo? Oh, yes. We have a website. It's pabloseragosabooks.com. Okay. They can go there. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. And uh, we're vigorously looking at other avenues to be able to publishers website, all these different places. Okay. And the Austin Macaulay website. Austin yeah. Macaulay has been very good to us. Okay. Uh, what's, your website, uh, what's, your, what's your website, Pablo? How do you say it? 
PabloZaragoza.com. You'll spell it out for us? PabloZaragozaBooks.com. Okay, so Pablo is P-A-B-L-O and then Zaragoza. How do you spell it? Uh, that's the Z-A-R-A-G-O-Z-A. Pablo Zaragoza. That's a Latino name, right? Yeah. I know you're yeah. That's my mother's maiden name. That's my mother's maiden name. That's in honor of her. Oh, okay. Because she has a lot to do with the formation. Yes. Uh, so it's Pablo Zaragoza Books. Books. Dot com. Okay. Now, right. what can people take away? Because, again, the reluctant Nazi. I kind of like that title because we think of Nazi as, you know, maybe evil and, you know, hurting a lot of people. But he's reluctant. Right. He's reluctant. So part of him is pulling him back, you know, maybe the superego, the, the spiritual side. So how do we apply that? Right. What's the lesson we can learn from the reluctant Nazi in life? Well, that we all can change. Given the right circumstances, we can all, we don't have to follow the same path all the time. Yes. We can change. We can transform. We can redeem ourselves mm -hmm. from the bad things that we've done by doing good, by providing for others, by showing charity, all these things. Yes. Now, working in the prison systems, have you ever seen prisoners reform as far as you know or, or become better during the work you did? Oh, yes. I've, I've seen definitely people who have transformed themselves. Okay. I've transformed themselves. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I've seen people who go from, <laughs> worse, from worse to worse. Okay, that's unfortunate, too. too. Okay. So it's, in, the, yeah, uh, it's in, your, in your heart, your mind, and your soul right. to, to make these changes. And uh, Absolutely. It's always been wonderful having you on the show. I mean, we really appreciate it. We'd love to have you back again. I know you write so many books, so I'm sure they'll be pretty soon. Do you have any works you're coming out with uh, soon? Are you working oh, on we got uh, We have one that's called uh, Palace of Wrinkles. Okay, what's that about? It sounds like a getting old and that is about that's a that's a, a series of short stories about this one place in Miami okay. that was called the Palace of Wrinkles, but we have a twist. Uh, okay, it's a it's it's a synthesis of the tales from the crypt meets ah, okay. uh, <laughs> tales of the crypt meets uh, the wrinkled set of Miami. Okay, that's interesting. Well, it kind of reminds me of <laughs> that'd be kind of crazy. Well, you know, Ponce de Leon, they said it was searching for the fountain of youth. Maybe you could do a take on that. Uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, the well, there's one story that's very much like that, but it like has that? a twist. Oh, okay. I like that. Okay. So you're a Twilight Zone fanatic, I would imagine. Do you ever hear the Twilight Zone? Oh, God. Twilight Zone. Across, all the uh, tales from the crypt. Okay. Uh, the Crypt Keeper, uh, okay. all those things, not only in in visual form uh, on television, but also in the comic books. Definitely. I read a lot of those things. Yes. Well, Pablo, again, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. If you, anyone wants to write into us to learn more about uh, Pablo's work, they can reach us at loveuniversitylove at gmail.com, 310-226-8090. Visit us at loveuniversity.love. Again, uh, Pablo, it's wonderful to have you on. You, you're a very compassionate guy. And very. I'm surprised today, the research you did is amazing. And so you're very meticulous in your research. And I think you love to help people. And uh, getting across a message that helps people through your novels is a wonderful thing to do. So, Pablo, thank you again for being on the show. We're going to have you back on very soon. Thank you, my friend. Keep keep in touch. That was a great interview with Pablo Zaragoza, a good friend, a award-winning novelist, and his book, The Reluctant Nazi. And how he really got into the whole idea of the horrors of Nazi Germany. But there was one man who transformed himself. He went from being part of that regime of evilness and hurting people the Jews and taking their money and their jewels and property and then giving that back, stealing it away from them and then having justice at the end. And also changing his own mindset, his own transformation from hate to love. And in many ways, people need to do that in our society today. Whether it's anger, whether it's jealousy, envy, you know, these kind of uh, destructive emotions, we can start to focus more on extending loving energy without expectation. The research shows that when you give to others, you actually feel much better than when you keep it. 
whether it's money or, or even your time and energy. So giving and loving is a very powerful antidote to much of what we suffer from, much of our pain. So this is Dr. Alex Avila. If you want to be part of Love University, our community, we have a lot of events where we meet through Zoom. We communicate with you guys. If you want to be on the show, if you have show ideas, you can reach us at 310-226-8090. Write us at loveuniversitylove at gmail.com. Visit us at loveuniversity.love. You can like us on Facebook at Love University Podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Love Letter U Podcast. Subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University, your professor of love, happiness, and transformation. Put away your notebooks, your iPads, your phones, and we'll see you next time, Dr. Avila. Thank you.